this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In Episode 7 of the Forensic Advancement Season, Just Science interviews Amber Burns, Chemistry Section Manager for the Maryland State Police Department, to discuss the role of technology in the fight against the current opioid epidemic. Opioid overdose is on the rise and fentanyl, one of the most prevalent opioids out there, is becoming more difficult to identify. By using the direct analysis and real-time DART mass spectrometer, Burns and her team can detect the presence of fentanyl and other chemicals in recovered samples. Listen along as she discusses the technology they use and the current state of the opioid crisis in Maryland in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to the Just Science Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan, with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. We're very fortunate today to have the chemistry section manager of the Maryland State Police, Ms. Amber Burns, with us. Uh, she has a BS in biology and a master's in forensic science and has been employed by the Maryland State Police Forensic Sciences Division since 2005, overseeing the three controlled dangerous substances units and the toxicology unit. She's an ANAB assessor and very experienced uh, controlled substances examiner. And we're going to talk to her today about how one state has been trying to deal with what is one of the worst, if not the worst, opioid epidemics in the country, and that is the state of Maryland. Welcome to the show, Amber. Thank you. I kind of shared with you beforehand, I'm from Maryland. I spent the first number of years, we won't say how many, a lot of years, <laughs> of my life in Maryland and still have a lot of family there. So Maryland is very near and dear to to my heart, and so I'm glad to have you working to try to help us up there and try to deal with this problem. So one of the things that we have seen in Maryland in particular is that this is something that Maryland, before opioids really had exploded nationally, was seeing a, a significant amount of heroin, especially in Baltimore City, but elsewhere in the state, but certainly in Baltimore City. Uh, heroin never really went away as a problem. Yeah, we used to get mostly marijuana and then cocaine and then heroin was a close third. I think it was about 20 to 30 percent of our case load. Um, and then marijuana got decriminalized in 2014. And now we are seeing a shift where we get more heroin than cocaine. I would say in 2013, we started seeing the fentanyls, but in small amounts and samples. And then 2015, we started seeing some of the analogs and now we see sometimes more fentanyl than heroin, sometimes heroin laced with fentanyl. We're getting a variety of really complex samples. And a lot of this, I'm sure, was coming through in death figures long before it was really evident in the crime laboratory. Right. The OCME identified uh, carfentanyl exposure death before we saw it in the lab. So they were seeing it, but we weren't seeing it. And we think that's because our analytical scheme was not designed to look for drugs in that low of a concentration in the samples. Mm -hmm. So in 2017, they look at the data from January through September for the overdose deaths, and there were 1,700, which was a pretty big spike, and about 1,500 of those cases were opioid-related. 
That's enormous. So to give yes. people a uh, feel, Maryland has what five, five and a half million in population right now, something like that. So that's an enormous figure for a state, which is not one of the bigger states. Right, and those are just the deaths, but um, I work with law enforcement all the time that are talking about the overdoses that don't result in death, but nonetheless are very taxing to deal with. Sure, so when you all came into and started to be aware of the fact that the fentanyl and fentanyl analogs were in place, what analytical methods were you relying on? We were primarily um, screening samples with color tests, and then we were following up with gas chromatography, flame ionization detection screening, and confirmation with gas chromatography, mass spectrometry. Sure, and is that still kind of your workhorse instruments? Yes, we haven't changed our workflow dramatically since the fentanyl epidemic has started. I was mentioning before the podcast, and I encourage folks listening now to listen in on Barry Logan's podcast with us from Asklad here too, where he talks about some of the analogs, and, and they have, of course, every instrument known to man in his laboratory. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't have that. And even he says, it's just like, wow, the work yeah. that we have to do in high-resolution TOF and things like that to try to tease out what's going on is very, very challenging for you all. It must be even more of a challenge because you just don't have the resources necessarily to put at it. Right. So we are understaffed, so it's tough for us to even dedicate the resources to do this type of research. But we also have taken a look at our data from 2017 and realized that in about a third of the samples where we've seen a fentanyl, we have not been able to confirm it. And in another 8%, we've seen multiple fentanyls and we were able to confirm at least one of them. So we're really only confirming them in close to 60% of the samples, which, I mean, is pretty impressive considering the complexity of these samples. But it's not addressing all of the samples that are causing overdoses. And you'll have to forgive me, but I, I'm surprised. I didn't know FID detectors were still being used in crime laboratories that much. Uh, well, we do use them because uh, what we like about them is we're often getting different types of samples that are not ideal for GCMS analysis, like oils and food preparation. So, um, and we're also dealing with unknown substances, so we don't know what concentration the drugs are in the sample. So FID is a nice screening tool to actually just determine, do you have a drug and what concentration is it? Do I have to further extract it so that I'm not like injecting you know, a sample that's not good for the mass spec detector? So sure. we're kind of trying to screen with FID just to clean up our samples a little bit, get it the right concentrations. Because we're running so many samples on the mass spec, we don't want to be running samples that contaminate it, and then we have to do all this maintenance to uh, get it back up and running. Yeah, a lot easier to change out a column on a GC FID than it would be to change out a mass spec. <laughs> right, and you know, the FID's just burning the sample, and it's not like collecting in the source and dirtying up the source, so. That's true, I hadn't thought about that. And mm -hmm. for these samples, that might be a real advantage, because there are safety issues. Right. You know, we kind of do both hand in hand. We have similar methods on the FID and the mass spec, but the FID we're also using mostly for retention time. Mm -hmm. And retention time is really what we need to distinguish between these isomers. So, you know, you can do that with mass spec as well, but we tend to use the FID for the retention time and the mass spec for um, the mass spectrum. Right, of course. You're not using LC-MS or MS, you know, tandem techniques or anything like that? You don't have that in the lab? Uh, we have one in the tox unit, but we don't have one for the drug unit. And at this time, we're not looking to expand to that testing. Okay. Yeah. But you are looking at DART top. So tell yes. me about what you're looking to uh, accomplish and what you're trying to do with the DART. 
So we started looking at DART because uh, we get a lot of task force requests where you know, we've asked them not to do field testing anymore because we don't think it's safe for them to handle these substances outside of a laboratory setting. So they need presumptive tests to go do what they need to do. And before you know, they were getting the field test, they could go get their uh, probable cause to further their investigation. But without being able to field test and with not actually having a lot of portable detection devices in the field, they needed to come to us to get their preliminary information to go do what they need to do. We're analyzing cases for them, but we really can't do a rush analysis with the instrumentation that we have. It kind of disrupts the lab to have a rush case come in and they're waiting for the analysis. So we wanted to find a tool that we could use in the lab to screen these substances more accurately, give them the information they need, and then we could do the confirmation at a later time. So we approached NIST to help us with that, and we started looking at the DART TOF as an accurate screening tool. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we've been um, sharing samples with them, some of our challenging uh, case samples, and we realized that if we had this data up front before we start our confirmation, number one, we can extract the sample better. You know, we kind of know what concentrations we're dealing with, so we don't need the FID. And if we know what we're looking for, we can create a GCMS method that's designed to look for that in our samples. So for example, carfentanil is usually a pretty weak constituent of the mixture. If we screen with DART, we know carfentanil is in there, we can do a targeted mass spec confirmation that is uh, designed to separate out the isomers and perhaps even do like a sim analysis to increase our sensitivity. So I think we can actually get better results with our shorter targeted GCMS methods than we can with our general GCMS screening methods. Well, yeah, I hadn't even thought about that because if you're looking at a mixture where the different constituents of interest all within an order of magnitude of each other, mm-hmm. a flame ionization detector kind of setup isn't bad. Right. But if you're looking at something that could be an important trace material like a carfentanil, you're just not going to see it. It's, not, it's going to be very hard, at least. Right, and some of the issues that we're having as well are some of the cutting agents that they're using with heroin, like quinine, are in such high concentrations in the sample that they're co-eluding with the carfentanil, and in some cases, interfering so much that we don't even see the peak of carfentanil. Oh, so, interesting. And every different sample mixture is going to propose a potentially co-eluding sample that we might miss some of these fentanyls if they're one of the smaller constituents of the sample, unless we're actually, you know, looking for them. Yeah, now the challenge with DART is really developing the method. It's really unusual. I'm an old GCMS spec guy myself. Okay. Um, a few <laughs> in, my, in my time when I was in Maryland, uh, working at uh, Applied Physics Lab and elsewhere. And so I'm very used to that when I think about method development. Right. Uh, you know, I'm thinking, okay, what kind of column are I going to use? What's yeah. my retention times? And all that right. makes sense to me. The DART TOF seems unpredictable to some degree, and it's very hard to, to develop the methods around DART, even though it's a very convenient technique. Right, and it's a little overwhelming for us as well because, you know, we're not experts in DART, um, which is nice where, where we have that collaboration. So we're getting educated about what the capabilities of the DART are as well. So DART is great because it'll give you molecular ions of anything that's in the sample. Mm-hmm. And it will give you fragmentation as well, but when you have a mixture, you're getting all of the ions you know, at once. 
Sure. So if it's not a super complex mixture, you might be able to figure out with more confirmatory information with the dart which fentanyl you have. But you know, if, if it's definitely if it's a mixture of fentanyls, you're going to get a lot of the same ions. So it might not be as discriminatory. Mm-hmm. But just the fact that you get the molecular ion is probably good enough for us because number one, it's way better than color tests because color tests don't tell you a lot. So from the samples that we've run already, we know that it's a very sensitive tool. So in samples, even with you know my current analytical scheme, I'm not seeing carfentanil at all. They're able to pick it up. So we're already able to see some of these really trace constituents of these mixtures. And then we haven't run enough samples on there to really know what the limitations are going to be, but haven't found many with the types of samples. In most cases, the DART was able to give us better information than our current analytical scheme. Yeah, we had worked with the DART TOF actually in, in our laboratory, and, and it can be very, very good. Our biggest problem was actually when we were trying to deploy it in too close to a field environment. Oh, okay. And at that time, at least, the machines weren't necessarily well suited in terms of their you know, ruggedness to that environment. But if you put it in a controlled enough place where you can, you can keep it maintained and, and not challenge it too much in that regard, it actually can be quite a nice instrument. It can do some things you just can't do any other way. Right, and it is a, a large instrument. So like yes. we are, <laughs> we're not really sure how well it'll um, fit in our smallest satellite lab. So, you know, we might actually have to consider how we would be able to implement it in a lab that's not set up for it. I mean, it is so sensitive that you do have to have it in the right conditions for it to give you the information that you need. Because we also were looking at, okay, well, if we just need more information than we're getting from color tests, then can we do like, like a single quad type direct analysis just to get an idea of what's in there? And that would be better than what we have now, but I'm not sure that that would allow you to target your analysis as much as you need to. If you can't distinguish between similar molecular weight substances, then you know if it was one compound, it might take you down this path to run this targeted method. If it was another compound, it might take you down another path, so we wouldn't be getting the information we would need to target the analysis as much. Sure. Now, one of the great advantages of being in Maryland is you have NIST in your backyard. So can you share with us the kind of the relationship between uh, Maryland State Police and NIST and how that came about and where your expectations are, where that's heading? Yeah, so we started working with them, I would say, about a year ago. And I work with primarily uh, Ed Cisco and Marcella Naharo, Mm -hmm. and they both have been, like, extraordinarily helpful. Mm -hmm. And in it, asking them some questions. They've also extended who we're working with there. So I actually got hooked up with Will Guthrie to do an uncertainty of measurement study. Oh, okay. Um, so they have some, of the, some great statisticians. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. so you know, if we, if we have questions now, I have the right people to ask. They can always put me in contact with somebody that, you know, a subject expert in, uh, in that question that I need answered. So it actually has expanded. So now we have like four or five projects going at the same time. Oh, okay. <laughs> All related to the dark top or some other areas? So one of the projects is uh, we applied for a joint grant so that we could do a project where we developed the protocol to screen the samples with DART. So we picked, I think, under 20 compounds. I can't remember. It was like 15, 20 compounds that were challenging for us that you know we wanted to be able to screen with DART and then do a targeted confirmation and see you know, which of our processes are more efficient and give you better results. Mm-hmm. And we also want to replace color tests with DART. And we think we could get 
from 80 minutes screening our traditional way of sampling, color tests, uh, GCFID, and mass spec down to, I think it was 35 minutes with screening with DART targeted GCMS runs. So um, we'd be saving analysis time on the mass spec and it would be a more sensitive and actually safer process. So we're hoping to see those results if we um, are able to implement that in our lab. Well, that's really, really exciting stuff. I hope you'll be able to work with NIST to try to capture that in some publications for the field because I know a lot of people would be very interested to see the results there. A bunch of folks have been trying DART. I don't know how many labs have really succeeded in getting it fielded and, and getting it into casework. Yeah, so we visited Virginia Department of Forensic Science and they are um, using DART in all four of their labs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't want to speak to their whole process, but I know they've had pretty good success screening with DART. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why we think it could be a useful screening tool because they're having success with it enough to expand it to their four labs. So. Okay, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So do you have a timeline in terms of what you're expecting to do in terms of deployment and use and everything like that? So if we are awarded the funding, I think we would get the funding early next year, I think. So okay. probably take about six months to actually validate the instrument. But the nice thing is that NIST has already developed the methods and, you know, we're sharing standards with them so that they can build their library. So when, you know, ours comes online, we can get the library, which is nice because that saves a lot of time to uh, already have the methods and the, the library. So then we can just really start the development of uh, how we want to use it in our lab. Well, it'll be really interesting to see the impact of what you're doing in terms of deploying because one of the ways is just like, there's an efficiency, but it really from what you're trying to do is a completely new kind of set of information is what you're trying to develop out of this. Right, and, and that's what we think we need because we're dealing with a lot of unknowns. And GCMS is nice. You get a mass spectrum, but with fentanyls, a lot of times you're not getting the molecular ion. So DART will give you that. But if you're trying to figure out what you have and you, you just have the spectra for GCMS and, and it's not matching to any of your library, if you have the molecular ion, that makes it easier to help you identify it. Plus, I think DART has some software to help you do structural elucidation, but I would rely on NIST to do that because yeah, that's right. not my uh, expertise. But um, yeah. I think, you know, GCMS, you know, and maybe the combination of the two will be what we need to help us identify some of these unknowns a little bit faster. Well, a lot depends on the kind of TOF that you're using, too, and how high resolution it is. Because if you have a nice high resolution TOF, it'll tell you awful lot of information about what's going on there and identifying the molecule. Right. So that's what we're kind of hoping too that, you know, if you get a completely unknown, which we are getting a lot because we're getting a lot of stuff that's mailed directly into the country and it's new stuff that no one's seen. So, you know, how do we identify that? If it's a fentanyl, we want to know that so that, you know, we can get the standard to start confirming them. Um, so, you know, we need a better tool to try to figure out what we have. So. Well, I hope that we'll be able to visit with you again when you've uh, validated and deployed <laughs> them, and we'll see how, how that, uh, the impact that it's having in, in MSP, and bring in maybe your NIST colleagues as well so we can uh, talk to them about how they uh, were a part of this. It sounds like a great partnership. Yeah, it actually is, and I think they realize by coming to our lab and seeing our processes how much they have the knowledge to help us, you know, and they're willing to help us, which is great because, you know, I've talk to a bunch of people here that are facing the same issues and mm -hmm. we're mostly production oriented and 
we're also super motivated to get these results out to the customer because these fentanyls are causing overdoses and we want to make sure that the investigators can do what they need. We want to make sure that the prosecutors can go after the dealers that are selling this stuff. So we are all highly motivated to address this issue better than we are currently doing. But we want to do it in a way that we feel confident in what we're saying. And I think that's where having the experts work with you and build that confidence and yeah, we know we're saying we have this iceberg to the exclusion of all others because this is why. You know, that helps us testify to our results. It's just invaluable. You just don't have the time either, no, we, right? I mean, you have, have case issues to, to deal with. They're only getting worse, as, as we indicated at the outset. And so uh, you right. need somebody to be able to do that research to help you out so you can get to that next level. Yes. So it's actually been a really good collaborative partnership. So we've really enjoyed working with them. Okay. Well, that's fantastic. Amber Burns yes. with a, uh, the chemistry section manager for the Maryland State Police. Thank you so much for being on Just Science. Thank you. And thank you to those who've been uh, listening in today. Make sure that you uh, give us lots of stars and thumbs up and lots of good reviews. And please tell your friends and colleagues about Just Science so that they can access some of the really cutting edge information that forensic science professionals need. And, and thank you so much for listening to us today on Just Science. Next week, Just Science interviews Ron Smith about the transformation of forensic sciences training over the years. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.